Good morning. Let's start with something a bit different and quite beautiful. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself. Pardon the interruption, but if you just had a sharp intake of breath going, what a criminal fade, and you were listening to this on podcast, I'm afraid fade we must. Tis copyright law. So this first part might be a little frustrating. So apologies. Listen back online though, and you get the whole thing. On we go. Wow. Once in a lifetime talking heads arranged for the RTE Concert Orchestra and Paul Noonan by Fiona Bryce in a bank holiday special to say happy 70th birthday to David Byrne. An hour of pure magic. So much fun. And musically, there was a lot on the radio this week. A documentary and performance feature film, This Much I Know To Be True, explored the creative relationship between Nick Cave and Warren Ellis and the two recent albums, Ghostine and Carnage. Warren spoke to Sean on Arena. There was definitely something there from the start. I, I... I can't really put my finger on it. Like, I, you know, I met Nick over dinner. He invited me into the studio um, and I turned up for a day. He asked me in for a day. And uh, at the end of the day, he said, we're in here for the rest of the week. Do you want to come in? You're really welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there was a moment in there, there was a song, uh, The Willow Garden, and, and they'd been working on it before. And, you know, Nick was sort of playing it and said they, they couldn't really work out a way into it. And, and I'm, I just made a suggestion about something. And you have to remember, I was incredibly overawed by the, you know, you know, really overwhelmed by the whole experience because this was a band that I really respected. Mm. You know, um, I loved the birthday party and then the Bad Seeds when they came along. It was like one of the only sort of rock rock bands that I can, kept up with because they just continually challenged me as a listener. And... and um, I remember Conway years later saying that he he was in the studio when I suggested this idea and he was waiting for Nick to say, get out. <laughs> and and it didn't happen, you know. And and then we ended up just sort of working out a way to do this song. And and I guess that thing that I that I, I think I share this thing with Nick that that I'll do whatever it takes for an idea to get across mm. the finish line. And if it doesn't, at least I know I've tried. So at what point did Warren actually join the band? I, I guess that, you know, you say he invited you in for the day. You know, it was a day initially, then we're here for the rest of the week. I presume there was no point, like like relationships in life, there was no point at which either one of you said or didn't say to the other, are we best friends now? Are we collaborators now? It just was taken for granted, I presume. Well, I, I think there was a point in 2000s and sort of something like probably 2000 and you know, probably like 10 years later, one day Nick just said to me, oh, no one ever said anything to you, but if you want to be in the band, you know, you can be sort of thing. <laughs> like it was a decade later. There was never any discussion about it, you know. Um, like friendships, you don't sort of discuss those yeah, things. Yeah. If they're working, they work. And they also take time, you know, even if you hit it off with somebody straight away, there's ebbs and flows in those things. And, and adding a collaborative relationship to that as well is another dimension you know that that feeds into it and and 
that you have to kind of protect or you have to kind of leave the friendship somewhere else, you know, and go into the studio and work. So, you know, it's just something that's evolved over time. Um, I, I, I certainly think the more we've worked together, the closer that we've become, you know, collaborative, collaboratively and as friends as well. And the strength of that relationship came into its own when they worked together after the death of Nick's son, Arthur, at the age of just 15. Nick had asked me, like, after, you know, he said to me, like, about a week after, he just said, you know, I need you to, to help me make this record. And and I said, whatever it takes, I'm there for you, you know. Yeah. And, and I went into that record um, knowing that I didn't know what it was going to be be like or anything I couldn't imagine you know like how he could even turn up and do it you know um but I wanted to make good on a promise that I'd made to him that I would do I'd move you know like heaven and earth you know to to do what was needed if we could make a record I just wondered about the emotion in the room. I mean, the lyrics of that song just stop you in your tracks. You know, I'm beside you. Yeah. Uh, look for me. Um, my friends have gathered here. They're singing me. I think they're singing to be free. I think my friends have gathered here for me. It's very difficult not to see those in terms of the, the, the tragic death of Arthur, uh, Nick's son, obviously. But that the level of emotion that is in the room, can you as the musician let that seep into you or do you have to kind of move away from it? Was there emotion in the room? Recording Ghostine remains one of the greatest two weeks of my life that no one can take away from me. And it just felt really for, for the first time and only time, it felt like there was something else in there guiding us. And I don't know what it was, but every day working on it, was uh, I can remember it clearly talking about it. I can remember everything about the way that I felt as things were coming to fruition and, and presenting themselves to us. I mean, it, there was something else there driving that record beyond beyond us. And there was this little idea lying around and pulled it up and I just started working on that thing and, and Nick sort of walked in and he sat down and just started writing those lyrics. And Nick sort of sort of sat there and walked outside, came back in and just sang that song over the top of it. Like it was an extraordinary moment when that song came to life. I think it's my favourite song on the record. Warren Ellis with Sean. And with Dave Fanning, more musical genius with Martha Wainwright, someone, it is fair to say, did not lick it off the stones. Kate McGarrigal, Loudon Wainwright and, of course, Brother Rufus. I get the impression, seriously, from the book that all the time you were trying to blaze your own trail in music because you felt you had to be different, that Rufus seemed to have it bloody easier than you did and you might have been a bit annoyed with that. Um. Well, you know, I think he's, you know, um, he seemed... Um, blessed with confidence, you know, which I think is such an incredibly um, powerful um, and useful uh, trait, you know, and and it's something that perhaps I lacked, and you know, was was you know made me made it made it harder for me, and but that confidence also with that confidence came 
practice. You know, he rehearsed. He, yeah. he, he, he tried very hard and, and is incredibly talented. So I had to sort of, you know, figure out where where I stood in that because we're very different, you know, and I was, he's my big brother. I've always looked up to him. I, 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 I watched him, um, you know, uh, create an, an incredible musical career. And it's very hard to not compare, you know, for yeah, me, it was yeah. not to compare myself, but I realized I couldn't. Ooh, so much talent around that dinner table. But Martha talked about family relations now. Things with Father Loudon Wainwright are good. But Dave asked her how she was doing after the death of her mother. Kate McGarrigal had galloped through her life, leaving an indelible trace. Do you think the impact of her death to you was just as indelible and still is 10 years later or more? Um, uh, no. You know, uh, no, I don't. I, I mean, I'm in a way, you know, writing this book and writing the story down. And and as I wrote it, I, I cried. And sometimes if I read it, um, I, I, um, I read it for the audio book, I cried. I hope to continue to cry every once in a while when I read the passage or think about it, because I would I, I would be scared for the day when I would stop crying about it. But in many ways, writing this is sort of really um, closed the book on it a little bit because it's been a long right. um, mourning process. And I think it, she would like it and, and uh, I would like it to, to um, you know, move past and to find, it's very important in our society, I think, to find ways to accept death because we have trouble with it. And, um, and there's something, um, you know, we have to find the beauty in it too. Martha Wainwright with Dave. And with Miriam, Paul Brady giving guitar lessons to Bob Dylan. If only he'd practice. I gather Bob Dylan, I know he has spoken of how enraptured he was by your recording of it. So much so I read that he asked you once to show him the distinctive guitar technique you <laughs> used. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He was playing in Wembley Stadium in the mid 80s, I think 85 it was, I think. And I got the phone call from the agency and Bob wants to meet you. So I flew over and was shown in backstage to where Bob was there and he wanted to know how I played it. So I said, well, for a start, you have to tune the guitar differently to, to the orthodox tuning. So he said, oh, yeah. And I says, you know, can I have your guitar? So he gave me his guitar and I tuned it to the an open D, which is the way I, I play the song. And, you know, I, I talked him through it and he picked it up and tried to play it. And if he put his finger on the wrong fret, I found myself taking his fingers and not, no, not, not there, over here. <laughs> and that was kind of uh, a really bizarre thing. That morning, I didn't think I'd be, I'd be moving Bob Dylan's fingers around the guitar neck. <laughs> and from that to this. It's like a dream, you know. <laughs> I, I, you guys, I just got a call this morning, you know. You never know what's going to happen, <laughs> yeah. you know, in this crazy old business. So I got a call this morning and here I am holding Kirk Cobain's guitar. I- 
Oh, synergy on the radio. That is Jack L. And for guitar pedants out there, Kurt Cobain's guitar is a 1969 Fender Competition Mustang. Lake Placid Blue Finish. Deeds Baby. And this featured in the Smells Like Teen Spirit video. And Martin Nolan of Julian's Auctions came into Ray. Now this guitar is estimated to reach 600 to 800,000 US dollars at auction at a minimum. So it's pricey. So much so, it has its own passport. Because it's worth so much money, what, what is, what's security like around it? Well, it stays with me. We was on display at the Hard Rock Cafe in London for a few days and we had 24-hour security with it all the time. And now it's going to be in Newbridge uh, starting tomorrow. Yes. Uh, Friday and Saturday comes out Saturday night. Then it goes on to Indianapolis. So we'll have 24-hour uh, security. security. But when you were travelling with it, say, on an, on an airplane, have what to happens? T- have to travel with it, uh, carry on on the plane um, with me at all times. Could never check it in. It travels with its own passport as well. So when you're crossing borders, you have to have it stamped in and out of each country as we left America into the UK in, Why is that? Why does it have to have its own passport? Because it's so highly valuable right. So you, in case I'm taking out treasures from America And we couldn't be having that But as for one careful owner Not exactly he had a bit of a habit of breaking up guitars, didn't he, Kurt Cobain? Yeah, that was his 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 stick, stick, <laughs> if you will, exactly. But like he was smart enough to know there wasn't a lot of money. He didn't have a lot of money, so he'd buy guitars. And when he was going to break the guitar as part of the act, he would switch out to a lower ah, price guitar. Right. He had two. Fender Mustang guitars they were his favourite guitar they were a little bit more expensive of course but he did actually break this particular gar- guitar we have here uh, in at Trees in Dallas which was like in late October 1991 very memorable performance and of course it was like Nevermind album was out and Smells Like Teen Spirit had just gone crazy and so everyone was going crazy but Kurt was frustrated with the sound technicians because he couldn't actually hear the music himself and so he actually out of frustration he broke the guitar This particular one This particular one and Ernie Bailey who was Kurt's uh, friend and guitar tech he's actually done a, a, a narration about that, this particular guitar and the damage done and the repair to it. And you can see the damage clearly on the guitar, but it still plays beautifully and very, very well. Swapping out the guitars, Kurt, a little bit disappointed. But as for Jack L, as he says himself, all of this was pure magic. Well, it immediately has the sound. Yeah, doesn't it? That's weird. The ghost of Kurt Cobain is and then in of the course, studio. You gotta have your. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Rumbling, simmering, brewing and bubbling. The debate around the ownership and running of the National Maternity Hospital. Well, it's been going on a while and it was back in the news this week ahead of a memo coming before Cabinet to greenlight the project. Quick reminder. The Religious Sisters of Charity recently announced the transfer of their shareholding in the company which owns the land to a charitable trust, St Vincent's Holding CLG, and they are offering the government a lease of 300 years at a tenner per year. A gift in all but name. Great, you might say. Or why not just gift it? Why not a publicly owned hospital on publicly owned land? But... 
time is a ticking. So, pragmatism versus principle, perhaps? On Tuesday's Drive Time, Professor Peter Boylan, former master of the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street, joined Cormac. The one phrase that troubles me in the constitution of the new hospital is legally permissible uh, and clinically appropriate. Now, clinically appropriate uh, is a phrase which is effectively a Trojan horse for the introduction of Catholic values. When I was master of Hollis Street, I introduced uh, sterilisation for women who wanted it for family planning purposes. I was summoned to the Archbishop's office who told me we couldn't be doing those things because they were not clinically appropriate or clinically indicated. Recently, there was an answer to a parliamentary question uh, from St. Vincent's which said that they did tubal ligations, female sterilising operations, when they were clinically indicated but not for the purposes of family planning. Okay, can I so ask you about that case, phrase? Because yeah. it's something that yeah. Professor Mary Higgins was asked about as well uh, by Brian Dobson. Uh, and she said that her understanding is that it's it's a future-proofing term. And she has no concern, she says, that uh, anything she's doing now in the National Maternity Hospital would not be able to be done in the new hospital. She has no concerns and she says she's the one providing the service. Well, unfortunately, um, that phrase, as I described it to you, um, has Catholic limitationing, limit, limiting connotations. And if you look at the 2018 legislation following repeal of the 8th, which Mary was very strongly advocating, uh, the legislation allows a woman to make a decision herself which does not contain the qualifying phrase of clinically appropriate. So a woman may turn up to a hospital and say, I want a termination, I'm entitled to it at 11 weeks. And the doctor can say, well, it's not clinically appropriate, or that can be the policy in that hospital. Now, we're being asked to believe that a Vatican-approved private company whose shareholders are committed to upholding the values of the Sisters of Charity will allow Uh, procedures directly contradictory to Catholic teaching to take place in a hospital whose management company they own. And this is how he finished the interview. This is what happens, Cormac, all over the world when religious congregations, age and and vocations fall off. They transfer into Catholic lay organisations. It's what happens uh, all over the world. To, To think that a hospital in Dublin 4 is going to be different and allow the building of a maternity hospital in which procedures directly contrary to Catholic teaching are going to take place is really quite naive. Tuesday's drive time, but on Wednesday's News at One, an opposing view from another former master of the National Maternity Hospital. This time it was Dr Rona Mahoney and she was vehement in her rejection of any idea of Catholic Church interference. Nobody has ever tried to introduce a Catholic ethos, has tried to restrict services at any point in any of the negotiations. Right Mm. back in 2016, the Mulvey Agreement mandated that the new hospital would have clinical, operational, financial independence. Um, And that the legal documents simply give effect to that. Why is it it that those legal documents, the licence under which the the hospital would operate, specifies uh, the provision of all clinically appropriate, I'm quoting here from the HSC's minutes, clinically appropriate and legally permissible healthcare services. Why why are legally permissible healthcare services qualified by this question of clinical Mm. appropriateness? There's been a lot of misunderstanding about this word. What this word actually means was inserted by the HSE and what it means is that the services delivered in the National Maternity Hospital, the new National Maternity Hospital, will be gynaecological, obstetric, neonatal. We will not be providing 
for example, brain surgery, we won't be providing okay. cardiac transplant. That's all that means, nothing else. It is not a code for any sort of restriction on proper practice in the new maternity hospital. It's just that Peter Boyle, a former master of, of, of the National Maternity Hospital, says that's exactly the phrase, clinical appropriateness, which was used to him by the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin uh, when he objected to the provision of sterilisation at Hollow Street. And we're talking about 30 years ago, Brian. I mean, we're talking about today mm-hmm. and the term clinical appropriate is in there because, as I've said, it is to ensure that everyone understands we're not performing brain surgery or cardiac surgery. It's all of the services delivered in the new maternity hospital hospital in line with obstetric, gynaecological and neonatal services. That's all. It is not code for religion. There is nothing in the structure of any part of the St Vincent's healthcare group now that can be controlled or any sort of religious influence can be exerted. There's no mechanism, there's no structure. The constitutions of the hospitals have been published. It is now, since last week, a secular organisation. Nobody can say that there is any religious influence pertaining in the Vincent's healthcare group now that is factually incorrect. We are a secular organisation. Right. I'm glad to be so. And this was how she finished that interview. I mean, the difference this is going to make for women's health care nationally is going to be extraordinary. And I would call on everyone to support this project. It is so important and it shouldn't be. We shouldn't have all these confusing misinformation statements in relation to nuns' religion. That is gone. That is a factual position now. Nobody can hide behind these misinformations anymore. That's over. From Wednesday's News at One. However, feelings on this subject run deep, as you will hear when Claire spoke to Ellen Coy, news correspondent with the Irish Independent, and Annie Hoey, Labour Party senator and member of the Oireachtas Health Committee. Women have suffered under the back of Catholic ethos and the overarching church over the past 100 years. And I don't think it is unreasonable for them to say, we want to look forward and for our maternity care to be on state-owned, yep. state land. Ellen points out, though, that nine of the 19 maternity units in Ireland are not yet providing abortion services. And all nine who are not providing abortion services today are state-owned HSE hospitals. So it's not well, a guarantee. No, it's not a guarantee, but there is a principle here. And, 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 and I think that's what, and I think people have a right to insist on that principle. We had a massive vote less than four years ago where people exercised and demonstrated what they wanted in terms of like reproductive health care and, and, and ownership and control over women's bodies. And I think people want a billion euro, like it's a billion euro plus at this stage of their money to go on something that is state-owned. I think that is reasonable for, for, for wanting a billion euro to be on something that's going to be state-owned. And leases and things are not state-owned. But for Ellen Coyne, this boils down to culture wars. So I think that this principle has kind of taken hold because there is the spectre of Catholic ownership or influence surrounding this hospital. But in reality, there is no Catholic ownership of the hospital. And just to point out, this story first emerged in 2017. As you see people forget, the story then was not concerns about the nuns running the hospital. The story was that we were going to pay for a hospital, the public, that would then be owned by a religious order. That is not the case anymore. The state is going to own the hospital. I think that because this is such a visceral issue, because it attracts such a strength of feeling about, you know, our history of having Catholic involvement in healthcare, that it attracts some very strong feelings and some very strong sentiments, which I understand and I can emphasise with. But the fact of the matter is that some of the strongest arguments being made against this hospital project on examination actually turn out to be quite weak. And back to Annie Hoey for the final word on this. 
Well, I, I don't think it is good enough to say that people are overreacting to it. This is visceral or otherwise. This is how people feel. This is how women who have suffered feel. Why is this such a, a complex structure? You know, there's questions now being asked around this. You know, the Taoiseach stood up and was like, it's going to be 10 euro a year, what a deal. Um, but then there's uh, this slightly opaque reference to 850,000 a year rent. If, you know, uh, I think it's, it's clinical, clinical th certain clinical things aren't met. What does that mean? And I think people have a right to, to delve further into what does that mean. I actually think since the papers have been released following Cabinet, we have even more questions. From the Claire Byrne Show. In other news, Katie Taylor storming Madison Square Garden and making grown women cry. I have been, I've seen my county win three All-Ireland titles. I've been to Champions League semi-finals. I've been to huge sporting events. I never experienced what I did really? at the weekend. I often go to football matches and I'd see lads crying and I never really got it because I always thought you had to have like a family connection or some sort of an emotional connection to the people out there. I was in bits. I couldn't get over the emotion <laughs> really? that I felt. I so really a, did. A Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano rematching Croke Park could be better than uh, Claire ridding the curse of Biddy Early, could it? Well, I wouldn't go that far in Croke <laughs> Park, but definitely having... Marie Crow on drive time. And what a tantalising prospect. Crow Park and on Liveline on Wednesday, Kelly Harrington confirmed she would get on the billing for any rematch. In which case, prop up Kilkenny native John, who had been in New York for the big match and was not the better of it. In the fourth and the fifth rounds, I read a report that said the, the singing and quieting down. It's because we were all holding our head in our hands. Yeah. Now I say it loosely, but it was kind of like... We didn't care about winning. Just stop hitting Katie. Yeah, yeah. Please, just take her home. Don't let her hit Katie anymore. And what happened after that? Incredible. Just pure heart. I mean, boxing skills and all of that, that's a given. But it's the heart. Yeah. And boy, God, she has some heart. Mrs. What Moore is... was right. The worry was that you've heard it hundreds of times, our Katie loves a scrap. Hmm. And the worry was she'd stand in front of this one and go with her. And it nearly cost her. So incredible. So the idea of Katie and Kelly being on the same bill... Ah. Would Crook Park be big enough? Not, not, not against each other, obviously. No. Would... It would be the one thing I hope I'd never, ever see. Oh, everyone everyone says that. I, yeah. don't, I don't think my heart could take it. No, no, no. no but the right. two of them in Crook Park... I sure stop it. Smelling salts for the nation if that one comes to pass. Live line on Wednesday. It was probably the first place I saw when I, you know, became aware when I got when I was born. Like mm. and, uh, I can remember my father and mother footing turf in in that place, you know. And, was, and then, of course, the land was reclaimed afterwards, and. Uh, the whole place changed, but uh, I always remembered it was a it was a nice sight when I was young, and you had briars and blackberries and everything like that growing there. That is Mayo man Martin Neary with Ray describing the plot on his own land, where he is going to be buried. Yes, buried. The council eventually gave him the go ahead, and while all of this might sound morbid, it really wasn't. In fact. Now he is giving away his land, all 39 acres, to the council as a woodland park for the community and most especially its dogs. A lot of people come there now and walk and they walk their dogs, you know, they can 
dogs and they can let the dog, small dogs now, and they can let them loose. Mm. Like they're leading them along the road, but when they come in there, they can let them loose, and the dog can run wild around the place, you know, and uh, and that's very nice. It's a pleasure to see them coming every day like that. Yeah, and that's important for you because you, you had a, a sheepdog that you loved. Oh, indeed, yes, for all Van Gogh. <laughs> and... Uh, He's buried beside me anyway, or he will be beside <laughs> me yes. when the time comes. Yeah. I, I, and all all my other dogs are, are buried in that area, so it's nice to be buried among your friends. <laughs> yeah, it is, of course. <laughs> and, and what were the other names of your dogs? Uh, well, they were all very left-wing. Right. <laughs> I had a dog, a dog called Fidel. After Fidel uh, Castro, right? Yes, yeah. indeed. And uh, I did uh, Salmon, so uh, Salmon Rushdie, yeah. Reading Salmon Rushdie or something. I was yeah. reading that book at one time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I well, I had a dog. I had a dog called Conor Cruz O'Brien one time, <laughs> but I thought Conor Cruz O'Brien let me down along the way. You know, <laughs> so the dog they... didn't, but the man did. <laughs> <laughs> But he is in no rush to get into that plot just yet. Not when there are more books to be read. And, and you read you read a lot? I do, yeah. I, I like to read, yeah. That's, uh, I think it's, you know, you're never alone when you're reading something. Um, and and you're never married and you, you've no children. I, I didn't, no. I like, I probably if I stayed in England, I would have, you know, but somehow it didn't work here, you know. I was living with, uh, you know, my mother and aunt and the place and didn't, uh, it never seemed to, to, to fit in or to yeah. work out. Now, given that he is something of a forward planner, plots all sorted, does he entertain any thoughts of future fluffy clouds and heavenly harps? Not a bit of it. There's a lot of atheism then in your family. Well, yeah, well, my father and uncle and I had an aunt. They had been to America and they were they were all atheists. Like, and uh, when I I got an awful shock. My father died when I was five. Like, and I hadn't been to school. Mm. I went to school then, and I I learned all about about hell. I didn't think there was any such place at all. God was it was very frightening. Uh, uh, to learn all about that, you know, and all the Christian thing. Yeah. But over years, over the few years in, I realized that my father and uncle and w- were quite right, you know. Mm. Or that's what I feel now. Yeah. Uh, no, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's priests around the place now and very nice, very nice people. But, but I would sort of disagree with the church. And what do you think happens after we go? Well, as far as I can see, nothing happens. <laughs> uh, according to scientists, the sun won't burn out for about two million years, and uh, the the earth the earth will survive until then too. And when I was going to school and learning all that Christian thing, they claimed that. Uh, you know, when you die, the soul would go to hell, uh, like if you were going that way. Yeah. And in the body, it would join the soul, you know, in hell when the when the world came to an end. But uh, as far as I can see, if the world is going to last for another two million years, 
We'll have a good rest, won't we? <laughs> we'll have a good rest. What a lovely man. That was Martin Neary with Ray. Now, if you watch Home of the Year, you might be familiar with architect Amanda Bone. Put her in a room with some china dogs, a few doilies and some mismatched wallpaper and just watch as she stifles a scream. So this came as something of a surprise. Well, actually, I do have clothes. <laughs> no, you don't. Have you seen Have you seen the scene in Friends where I think it's Chandler um, discovers his girlfriend's secret cupboard? <laughs> well, in my defence, yeah. we have a small home. I have maximised storage. I've got flush storage, floor-to-ceiling storage, reset storage, storage people don't even know that exists. But we've one secret room that I let nobody into, not even my mother. <laughs> You open the door and it's just piled high. When I go in there, I simultaneously cry <laughs> and laugh. I thought if anybody sees this room. What is in there? Just stuff. Oh, and by stuff, I'd say she means a biro and perhaps a teaspoon. But even sitting in the Tuberty studio was causing her grief. I mean, look at your desk. It's not bad. Uh, but yeah. No, How on. can you I'm work not, with that? Oh, no, I, I need to explain this. So these pieces here of paper here are, let's say you you keel over. And this isn't cluttered. This is where I say, well, Amanda's fallen on the ground. So I'm going to go here and talk about this. So I immediately have somewhere to go. So I'm not completely lost. That's one. The coffee is the coffee. Yeah. The water flask is the water flask, obviously. Uh, everything has a roll here. That's grapes in a bag. That's an email. Just okay. That should be over there. But otherwise, this is a clutter-free zone. This is a very, very tidy radio desk. I'll just pick you up on one element. Yeah. Sustainability. What's yeah. that cup? This, which this <laughs> no, one? No, the cup. The no, coffee I, I, cup. My, my, my beaker that I fill with water every morning. I'm impressed. My flask. I'm impressed. My beaker. <laughs> I'm back to school. I was seven again. But what my, about what? What is that? This is a fully compostable yeah. cup okay. that 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 we put coffee in when we get them in from from the canteen. Which that's why it says. Everything in this can go in the right bin. So that's what that is. So thank you for pointing that out, but we're done. Well, not so fast, Ryan, because it turned out that sustainability was central to Amanda Bone's thinking around building and architecture. It's all about how do we build sustainably? Mm. How do we design sustainably? What materials do we How use? do we import materials? Or not. Because you've got to think about the embodied carbon. When I started my practice... When I think about it now, I would, uh, if the clients, my clients were interested in a tile, I think nothing of ordering a tile from China, mm. never thinking about the air miles or is it a, a sustainable source? Is it a sustainable way of, of, of manufacturing? Um, so the way of teaching is, is is changing hugely. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know if, it's, if this is one that you can answer, Amanda, but can everyone afford to be uh, sustainable or econo- ecologically or environmentally sound or is it a little bit in the preserve of those who have a higher income? No, and that's interesting because because good design is clever design and good design is inherently sustainable. Yeah. So good design, it always revolved around making the most of the orientation in terms of grabbing the sunlight and, and the daylight. So in terms of, of that element, it hasn't changed. More it's come back to the type of materials we use and the type of way we, be, we build and, 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 and the building process. So yes, it is. And while her own house is, as you might expect, minimalist and white, there is colour and there is art but we're not necessarily talking pretty. 
art in a way like music or, or, or books, it has to really move me emotionally. So I like a, a kind of abstract, very aggressive art, I think, in a way that would upset me. I remember as, as a child being brought to the, the uh, Hugh Lane Gallery and seeing Brian McGuire's Liffey Suicides. Mm-hmm. And that was the first I heard about suicides. And I remember reading into it. But I remember standing there and just being completely overcome with emotion, but not really understanding why. Really? And then my dad brought me to Rosk. Do you remember that? Yes. And, and that just, again, opened my eyes to, to art that, that I had never come across. And in fact, years later, when I was working and I walked into the Curling Gallery and there was a, a self-portrait by Brian Maguire. And I remember walking there and that would be 10 years after I first saw his work, The Liffey Suicides. And I just stood there and the same emotions came over right. me. So... I, I, you know, I, I like all type of art, um, uh, uh, but it really it has to move me, as I said, like 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 listening to a song. Yes. Um, um, so, but as I grow older, in fact, I'm I'm becoming uh, more interested in in maybe softer work or or different type of work. But but it doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, famous or not famous. It's just if I look at it and, and it's moving. Really interesting. But to finish, back to her slightly tortured relationship with the Giggles. I have cluttered drawers rather than a cluttered room. Are I you can't deal with cluttered yeah, I know, drawers. I know, I know, I know. I, know, I need no. to know what's in every single drawer. When I lie down a bed. I need to know what's in the back of that drawer in the kitchen. I'll, or I'll get up like I did last night. And? And I'll, I'll have to sort it out. I went to bed well, early because I had to get up early to be. Yeah, I only appreciate that. I still that. got out of bed to, and got rid of that extra drawer. earphones that were in the wrong Is drawer. Is that what it was? Yeah. Wow. The very charming Amanda Bone with wine. On drive time, Mammy and Daddy scrapping again. I just I don't really understand how you get to the age of 40 25 <laughs> um, without seeing the movies like that that takes some work that takes deliberation can you understand it Gareth how you get to, get to sort of middle age if you know what I'm saying it's so Cormac but I mean it is sort of middle age um, and, and not have seen the movies Ooh, spare a thought for the child stuck between the bickering and the child in question is Gareth Morgan, news editor at the Irish Independent, who had treated slash inflicted all of the Star Wars films on his child over one weekend. Films that Cormac had not seen. How could this be? I've no idea because, you know, whenever... I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and I'd go around my friends' houses and they'd be on the VHS tapes. Should we watch Star Wars? And should we watch, you know... It was so big in those days that you couldn't escape it. I mean, maybe then it did die off for a while, but um, obviously as as people our age have their own kids, Mm. you know, it's something that we want to reconnect with and enjoy with our own children again. Which is the best one? uh, Sorry, Sarah. Which is the best movie, though, the Star Wars series? Well, that that's liable to, to to get you in trouble, really, if you want to discuss <laughs> that. But um, in my opinion, you have to go back near the start. And I think, you know, there's a bit strong argument for the first one because when you think of Star Wars, even if, you, if you've never seen them, Cormac, you must know Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and characters like that. They're, yeah. they're so enduring. 45 years later, everybody recognises them. Um, and it, well, well, every, everybody him. except for Cormac, of course, because he, he <laughs> has somehow managed not to see. <laughs> I was busy washing my hair. <laughs> okay, well, that is uh, Cormac's homework for the weekend. Perhaps I'll remember might... this, McInerney. <laughs> I'll remember. You only this. need twenty-five hours. <laughs> <laughs> And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.